0: So in the Bible in the pew in front of you, it should be on page 924. The scripture today is from Acts 15, verses 22 through 35. Again, that's Acts 15, 22 through 35. It should be on page 924 in the Bible in the pew in front of you. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter, the brothers, both the apostles and the elders to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, Greetings. who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also.
1: Well, if you've been tracking with us for almost a year now as we've been working our way through Acts, you've noticed maybe a series within the series. I've called it out a few times. Within this broader series, we, we've seen our ten core convictions as a church continue to emerge. And really so much of, of the, the roots of our convictions come from the early church as expressed following Pentecost. And rightly so. And so this one you'll see again this morning. We certainly see modeled for us throughout Acts these convictions. And this one they clearly believed. We've seen it already already but I'll call it out in in even more focus this morning. We need one another. You can check out all of our convictions online on our website under Tell Me More, or you can listen through the series in the sermon page under Acts and see all of our convictions beginning to show up. I think there's a few more we still have to hit. We need one another. The church knew that they were not to be alone and The mission that they were called to was too big to accomplish alone. And yet this conviction was under attack, as it always is. Unity, community, belonging. The church has always struggled to maintain those. We always have an enemy who is at work. So important for the church are those things that the enemy is constantly at work to divide to distract, to break apart. And so we must work equally as hard to fight for unity and restore relationships. And we see the body in Acts 15 doing that exact thing. Working for, fighting for unity. As I said last week, it could be argued that Acts 15, or at least the events described in Acts 15, the Jerusalem Council, circa A.D. 48, was the most significant and maybe pivotal moment in all of church history subsequent to Pentecost. We probably got to put that asterisk in there. Pentecost was a pretty important moment for the church. But subsequent to that, so another way to say it, in the last 1970 years or so that no event, no moment had greater significance or importance than the Jerusalem Council and what happened there, therein and thereafter. John Calvin himself said something I thought was pretty striking. I said it last week. He, he said, he quoted, If Paul had relented, if he had given in or deferred at the Jerusalem council, Christianity would have come to nothing. I think it's striking because one who believes and proclaims the sovereignty of God so clearly throughout his writings. We could say something like that. I, I would tend to challenge John Calvin if I could, which I'm very hesitant to do. So, I, I think God, God had a plan. And you could say idle speculation. Look, look what turned out. But rightly so, the church would have split or splintered had Paul yielded to the question at hand, the issue at hand. And by God's grace, by the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit with them, the church endured. In fact, not just truth that was spoken in love prevailed, grace triumphed, unity not just survived, but it thrived from this point on. And really the central issue that we dug into last week was this one, the question, did Gentiles, non-Jews, in order to receive Jesus as Savior, did they need to first become Jewish? After all, Jesus, the Jewish Messiah. So to become a Jew would have required circumcision for men. Would have, been, would have required following the ceremonial aspects of the law. Begin to eat kosher. And follow in the sacrificial system, the feasts, the holy days. Now, some of those had been changed because of Jesus, who has come and fulfilled all the law. That's what he had proclaimed, and that's what they are wrestling with. He's fulfilled everything. What, what remains? What, what is left? And the, even the early church was realizing that Jesus was once for all the final sacrifice, the, what we celebrate at the communion meal. His body broken, his blood shed once for all, the final lamb. So that was being set aside. They were in transition. But what remains? Certainly, he's still the Jewish Savior. So in order to receive him first, or at least shortly thereafter receiving him, begin to look Jewish. Begin to make that transition as well culturally. That's the issue at hand. And thankfully, Peter, Paul, Barnabas, James, the other apostles who were present, the other elders who had assembled for this council, they all declared, no, no. Gentiles do not need to become Jewish in order to receive Jesus. The matter is settled. As I titled this sermon last week, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. But the question left hanging, I think, as you read through Acts 15 and you read the letter or hear the letter as Chris read it for us, you might pause and say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. It, didn't they add to it? Wasn't it, Isn't the formula, Jesus plus these four, four things, these four prohibitions equals everything. Because very clearly they came to a conclusion that the Gentiles in these other cities, Antioch and beyond, they needed to follow these four things to or to not follow these four things, to abstain from things polluted by idols, from blood, from animals that have been strangled, and from sexual immorality. These, those four things. Uh, three out of four of those sound pretty strange to our 21st century ears. With the one that's thrown in there, sexual immorality, seeming to recur often throughout the New Testament as a prohibition. What of these other things? Isn't that Jesus' Plus, these four things equals everything. What we need to understand is that these are not additions to the gospel. These are not requirements for salvation. These were actually encouragements given to the Gentile church. Encouragements to promote unity. To help the Gentile church understand more fully the identity and the cultural importance of what it meant to be Jewish and how to remain in unity with one another, maybe consider them as the first local church membership covenant. Now that you are in Christ, you are saved, you are one in body, you do not need to be circumcised, you do not need to follow the ceremonial law, but in order for fellowship to go forward, these four things would be good for you Gentiles to receive, to embrace, or to defer I believe Peter and Paul and Barnabas and James and the other apostles and the elders, they recognized the seriousness of this moment. And even though they weren't adding to the gospel for salvation, they realized by saying, okay, circumcision means nothing, ceremony means nothing, maybe outside of nostalgia or tradition. But while those things mean nothing, what was happening in the church is there was no true fellowship. And they recognized the potential for church split or at least to continue on two different tracks. Think of it this way. In the church in Antioch and in the other cities throughout Galatia that had had received Christ, there were now meeting Jewish life groups and Gentile life groups. All believers in Christ. So Jewish Christian life groups and Gentile life groups. As they came into one another's homes and shared a meal together. Often there was a much larger meal than a little cracker and cup of juice as they broke bread together, as they responded to Jesus when He said, do this in remembrance of Me, as often as you gather. That's what they were doing. But what, what, what couldn't happen was true fellowship. There were no mixed groups. Because the Jewish believers continued to receive the, the ceremony of Dietary restrictions of eating kosher. It was so important for their cultural identity and for their heritage. They, they knew nothing else. While Gentiles had no restrictions, those bacon-eating heathens, I mean, they, they'd, they'd cook bacon and crumble it on everything. And for, for one who grew up Jewish, to even walk into that environment would have felt wrong. It would have felt s- sinful even to be in, in, in that presence, even if they didn't sit at the table and eat the bacon themselves, for their conscience sake, even to enter into the home didn't work. And the Gentiles were wrestling with that, how to extend that fellowship. And I'm sure some probably said, okay, then forget that. Forget the bacon. We'll, we'll do without. And they probably got even further pushback and then more confusion. As the Jews said, yeah, but how was your food prepared? And where did you buy it? And, where did, and they're going, what do you mean? Why does that matter? It's good. So there were no no mixed groups. True fellowship wasn't taking place. And the leaders, I think, saw the potential division that would continue. And yet we are called to be one. And so they wrote this letter, which I could summarize like this. Dear church, we need one another. Hey, you Gentiles, you need your Jewish brothers and sisters. You need to learn from them, listen to them, love them. Hey, you Jews, you need your Gentile brothers and sisters. You need to learn from them, listen to them, and love them. Paul would later write in a number of places, but I'll call out two, uh, as he wrote a letter to the church in Ephesus about the importance of unity, of being one, that as we've hammered again and again in this series, walls have been broken down because of Jesus, a new family is being born, and we are called to be unified. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1 and following, Paul says, As a prisoner for the Lord, he wrote this while he was in chains in Rome, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, For there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Catch how many times he used one? Emphasizing the unity in the body and what Christ had done to bring together, not to divide. He'd broken down walls. In Galatians chapter three, so... A letter that Paul wrote to the churches, those new churches that he and Barnabas had seen begin on that first missionary journey that we've just recently studied. He wrote back this letter in Galatians chapter 3 and said there, there is neither Jew nor Gentile. And he wasn't saying that that ethnic or cultural distinction didn't remain. He was saying there's no division. There's no separation. Just like he said, there's neither... Slave nor free, neither male nor female. Clearly, those distinctions still existed, but no division. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And Paul would just continue to hammer on the unity in the body and the oneness, really, that came, for him, his theology, it predated the Jerusalem Council. But when that was settled, he went out encouraged and empowered to proclaim the oneness. Do you remember Peter's response? Here, trying to get to the heart of this issue when it came to fellowship and the cultural identity of dietary restrictions and eating kosher. Even Peter, we know Peter's journey his up and down journey. Fully restored by Jesus, welcome, shown grace upon grace, and he goes out and he now he's on mission for Jesus. This is Acts chapter ten, and he has this vision. Do you remember that that vision? of the sheet that was dropped down and all of these animals in it, these unclean animals. And the vision, and Jesus said to him, Acts 10, 13, there came a voice, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And he had this vision three times. And what was Peter's response? He uh, he abhorred it. He said, by no means, Lord. I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. So even after all he's experienced, The transformation in his life, grace in Christ, freedom in Christ, he still held this as part of his identity. It's all he knew. And Jesus was trying to open his eyes to what he had done. And it ultimately wasn't about what you ate or didn't eat, as he. Jesus had already said that. Hey, it's not what goes into the mouth that makes someone unclean or clean, but what comes out of it. It's a matter of the heart. And and Jesus doesn't care if you're a vegetarian or a meat lover, but he wants your heart to see him and to see others, and to be unified, and to not divide over those things. Now James, who was the leader of the Jerusalem church, so he kind of, I think he inscribed his name maybe first on the list, along with Paul and Barnabas, and maybe Silas and maybe some of the other leaders who were there present at the council, they could have written the letter differently. They could have written it to the Jewish Christians in these cities in Antioch and beyond and said, now Jews, let me tell you, you just need to eat what the Gentiles are eating and and get over it. Set aside. It's in the past. There's no clean and unclean anymore. Just... Eat the bacon and like it. And who wouldn't? But this, I'm sure, even within this body, I know this is true, but we all have different preferences, don't we, when it comes to eating? Now, there are certain restrictions that we might have physiologically. There's a reason why we have gluten-free wafers here in the front. It's not for preference Although some of you prefer. You are avoiding gluten. But there's others that cannot have gluten. Imagine saying to your friend who is so convicted to be vegetarian. I have a few friends like this. Not because of dietary needs. It would be like saying to them, listen, you just need to eat meat. Especially, I mean, at least if we're going to have a life group. It's so... It's so weird and awkward for you just to come and eat the vegetables and just just enjoy it. You know it's free. It's fine, right? Jesus said, kill and eat. We were given animals for that reason. You see the insensitivity to that? And they could have written that letter. Listen guys, just Jewish, Jewish believers, that it's in the past. Get over it. But they recognized to build up unity in the body how much Jews were already reeling with, coming to grasp with, wrestling with. Circumcision, which had basically been the, the sign, the marker of a covenant people for a thousand, over a thousand years, now means nothing. It doesn't, that, that's not, you don't, you're not set apart through that sign. You're not set apart anymore through the religious festivals and feasts. There's no more pilgrimage to Jerusalem needed. Besides maybe tradition, nostalgia. Those things weren't forbidden, but they did not mend your relationship to God. They did not mediate any longer. There's no more priest. There's no more temple. The veil has been torn. And really on and on we could go. And Jesus wasn't saying, abandon your cultural identity and heritage. And neither was Paul or Peter. Or James, who grew up Jewish. Paul said he was the the Jew of Jews, basically. He's saying that doesn't make you closer to God. So they were reeling. And I think the letter, the tone of the letter to the Gentiles is saying, hey Gentiles, meet your brothers halfway. In fact, take a couple steps because they're coming the rest of the way. For them, their their whole... Heritage and culture is being challenged and they are wrestling with it. So make your table fit for them. Think about them. Care for them. Avoid those things. Abstain from those things. When you go receive, how hard was it for the meat lover to not eat meat that night? Likely this this prohibition is simply in the context of fellowship and communion. Communion. Eat whatever you want in your own homes. Because that freedom continues throughout Scripture. I mean, Paul himself said, everything is permissible. Guys, everything is lawful. Not everything is beneficial. So to think that they wrote this letter out of, out of tune, for all of life, just avoid all of those things. That, that doesn't line up. But in fellowship and for community, meet your brothers halfway. Come to them. Here's a couple of reasons why we can be sure that these were not additional requirements for salvation. I'll give you two. One is the language that is used. Did you notice the phrase, it seemed good to us? Through the council and through the discussion, they came to a conclusion and three times, verse 22, verse 25, and verse 28, says it seemed good to us. It seemed good to us and the Holy Spirit. Well, we were praying. We were seeking Him. We know He was with us. We are unified. He's got to be with us if we're unified. And so here's the conclusion. This seems good to us. It's somewhere between... it, It wasn't just we offer our suggestion that you avoid these things. But it also wasn't we strongly advise that you renounce these things. It was somewhere in between. Because look how, look how it ends. Verse 29, the letter ends. If you will keep these, you will do well. What are they talking about? Unity, community, fellowship, belonging. Now, we're, we're, we're encouraging you. If you'll do these things, this is going to be good for the church and good for you. We need one another. This wasn't a thus says the Lord command. They didn't receive that. But together, as they sought him, and they distilled, and they shared, they came to this conclusion. And we, we strongly encourage you. You know, there another note that's, I think, worthy to say on these four prohibitions, to understand culturally what was happening for Gentiles, primarily under Roman rule in these cities, because if it was just about food, if there were the three, not animals that have been strangled, that means the blood remains in them, it's not prepared kosher, which they, the Gentiles just weren't even asking that question, so they had to reinforce that. Animals that are strangled, and blood, avoid those things, and food offered to idols. So in, in a Roman city, there would be a temple and many deities that would be worshipped, and animals and and meat would be brought in sacrifice to them. So at least they could understand that, the Jews and the Gentiles, the Romans, that there was some offering brought to the gods to, for the Romans to appease them. Clearly there was more to it for the Jews. But after that meat was offered to sacri- to the, to, in sacrifice at the temple, there was basically a corner market where that meat would go and you could buy it at a much cheaper rate. So of all of these four, that may have been the hardest for the Gentiles. Man, I'm getting my... You say I can't buy my meat at that corner market anymore? It's twice as much at Whole Foods. So fellowship and unity was going to cost them something. And if it was just those three, we'd say, oh, clearly. It's about dietary restrictions and it's kosher and it's fellowship. So why do they throw in sexual immorality? I mean, no brainer, right? And apparently the church has never needed that reminder. So it could be as simple as that. Hey, I mean, let's just get that one in there now because have you seen the way, I mean, gosh, the world. It's 1970 years ago. Um, Some have said we're more and more like modern day Rome in America than we'd ever want to admit. One thing that's not taking place overtly is temple prostitution, which was, a part of pagan cultural worship. Abhorrent. And so likely, there's at least a nod to that in these restrictions. Make a clean break, you Gentiles, from Roman worship at the temple. Clean break. Okay? The meat associated with it, the food that's associated with it, and the sexual immorality that's associated with it. And they were ready to do so. These believers who have now found Jesus and his freedom and grace and love and mercy are ready to make a clean break from their past, from worthless idols, from worthless empty worship. And apparently, I would see a, a parallel way back from Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. Where God said, A man will leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two will become one. The same thing happens as we are united in Christ. And that picture is consistent throughout Scripture. Paul will hammer on that picture in Ephesians chapter 6 of what marriage truly reflects the love relationship between Jesus and his bride. And so, similarly, As the Gentiles are coming to Jesus, they're ready to leave their former way of life and be united as one with Christ. And any kind of sexual immorality that was a part of their regular lifestyle, acceptable, encouraged even, they were ready to to be completely removed from and no longer identify with it. And what is their response? Verse 31, here's the clincher. When they read it, the letter, when they heard the letter read, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. If they received this as additions to the gospel, hey, you may not have truly received Jesus. Everything you've experienced, the manifestations of the Spirit, the healings are all called into question. They may not have been genuine because you have not become Jewish enough. Do you think they would have rejoiced at that? And receive that as great encouragement. No, all they've heard is the freedom in Christ and the grace of Christ extended to them. Gentiles. So they clearly saw the distinction between what it meant to follow Jesus and receive His forgiveness. And now what they heard was, we get it. We are being encouraged toward unity and fellowship. We can come around one table. I think I speak for all men if you think about how that went, right? So this travel wasn't as easy back then. It took days and weeks for them to go from Antioch to Jerusalem. Who knows how long the council went. So if you remained back in Antioch, you're not getting text updates, right? It's it's not on a podcast. It's not live streamed. You're not even getting a phone call. So you're there waiting for the judgment that you know it's gonna come back one way or not. Okay, either we need to become Jewish. and If you're a man, you might have some sleepless nights about that decision. Is Paul coming tomorrow? Are we going to find out? And there they come. They're over the hill. Hey, Lucius, Lucius. Did they have a knife anywhere? So when they come back and they're listening, you're a man, you're listening and you hear no circumcision. And maybe all you heard. Hey, and you're pushing each other and you're, you're laughing and you're hugging. Oh, thank you, Jesus. And then you go, what, what now? What? I can eat that. It was a good trade, wasn't it? So no wonder they rejoiced and were encouraged, but it goes far deeper than that. The the gospel is truly healing. The gospel reconciles. The gospel unifies. We do not need to divide over secondary and tertiary issues. In fact, we must be unified. We must fight for unity. Heritage and culture and tradition and preferences are to be celebrated They are not to be regulated, providing they are biblical. God's family is meant to be eclectic, and yet they are one. One of our values here is diverse fruit for a reason, both in the fruit that we bear and share and give because we are uniquely and diversely gifted as followers of Christ but because diversity is a picture of God's kingdom forever. We are diverse, but not divided. Unless we forget that picture. In Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, the vision given I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes, and all peoples, and all languages, distinct. We are not made to look the same. We continue in our culture, our heritage, our ethnicity, and even the very languages we are proclaiming at the foot of the throne and before the Lamb crying out together with one voice. Just imagine that picture. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb in over 6,000 different languages or dialects, but with one voice. Now, will we all hear and understand, or is that why we have an eternity to learn one another's culture and language and heritage? that God has ordained do not forget that picture as we strive for unity within the body that we lest we would do the very opposite thing within the church than what it is meant to be for all eternity and you would say well that's heaven i mean that we also know what else is removed in heaven sin selfishness self-centeredness so one day good, but today no way. Today it's just just too hard. Except Jesus taught us to pray, "Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven." And so with that picture of heaven in mind, and we've only got a few glimpses of that throughout Scripture, when Jesus says pray to God the Father that His will would be done here in your midst, church, in this world as it is in heaven, that's your prayer for that kind of unity, diversity. Because that may be the most single, greatest witness to the world that is broken, divided, fighting, and at war, whether it's within a marriage, a family, a household, a neighborhood, a workplace, the church, or nation to nation, when across all barriers, there is one unified body, the witness of that could be more powerful to an unbelieving world than almost anything. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Doesn't that assume that we do something, not just recite words like an impotent mantra? Wouldn't that mean that we actually do something about that prayer? Follow conviction of heart. Let me give us three applications relatively quickly. How do we bring Acts 15 forward to 2018? One, we can lay down, defer our preferences for the sake of others. But that would require humility. It's so convicting to see the response of the Gentiles who rejoice at the opportunity to rearrange their life and their habits and the way they're doing home groups, they rejoice at that opportunity for unity, to defer. Quick story, when I moved to Wisconsin for a job at a church out there, staying within the Alliance, in this district, we are a little more, I use the L word, liberal? <laughs> Here's the picture. I got to... I got licensed in this district, in other districts. So I met with the district superintendent before taking the job. Essentially, it was a done deal. But he said, in our district, our pastors don't drink alcohol. Now, he knew nothing about me except that I was from the Pacific Northwest. So probably just assumed that I loved micro And of course, he was right. And so he said, do you have a problem with that? Because they've all signed a covenant, complete abstinence. And I said, yes, I do have a problem with that. Uh, it's not biblical, and so we had a nice conversation. At the end of the conversation, I agreed, going into a youth pastor position, to, to not drink, to abstain in any public setting or gathering, whether at a restaurant or at a friend's house, for the sake of conscience of others. And he was okay with, within my own home, me having a nice cold IPA from Red Hook, which brought me home a little bit, at least for a few nights. But I didn't rejoice at the opportunity to defer preferences for the sake of unity. In fact, if you want to ask Catherine later, I'm assuming there was a little bit of consternation, if not grumbling, and superiority complex. That since God has completely worked out of me, (laughs) completely, done. So I ask this question after we've just laughed a bit, which is good. What of our preferences need to die for the sake of unity to increase? And I have a bunch of examples, but they're mine. And so to share them with you robs you of the chance to wrestle with the Spirit on that, which you're free to do. Which of our preferences must die for the sake of unity? that community would thrive. If all of our preferences need to match, especially within the church, let's just start there. That's kind of the context. We might end up hopping from church to church to church every few months, every few years, and never end up truly planting. However long it takes to find out that my preferences really aren't met here. It doesn't match well enough. But that's just a hypothetical. I've heard it said, I found the perfect church and I'm its only member. Do we want to be comfortable and in control or do we want to be in community? We do have to wrestle with that. And I'm convicted by the response of these Gentile believers, that they rejoice at the opportunity to defer and serve. That's one potentially practical application. Two, we can do more than defer because if we simply dwell on all the things that I'm giving up, I don't know about you, but like I I make a list. I mean, I am giving up so many more things than this person. (laughs) That's not healthy. So we should probably go beyond just where do I need to defer? Good question. To What do others actually, what what, what are their preferences? What do they want? What makes them tick? I haven't even asked that question. Maybe I could actually dwell on what their interests are. What a progressive concept. Or is it an ancient one? Paul wrote to the church in Philippi, Philippians 2 verse 3, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves. It is yours in Christ Jesus. It could also be translated, your attitude should be the same as Christ, who looked to others. How many divisions and quarrels and arguments and bitterness could be avoided if we would simply listen in order to learn and love? to find out the why behind. If we don't ask the why, we can make all kinds of assumptions about one another, can't we? What's the why? Where's that from? What's that root? We dwell on others as much, Paul says, more than we dwell on our own needs and our own interests and our own preferences. Third, and above all, I think, We must be relentless in our commitment to Christ's mission. For unity to thrive in the body, we have our eyes fixed on Jesus and the mission we are called to. We recognize the magnitude of the mission to preach the gospel to the ends of the earth as they clearly did. The mission is too big to do alone. It's too important not to do together. It's what we've been invited into because God is building a family that is on mission. We cannot fulfill it alone. We need one another. We need everyone we can rowing in the same direction. And by the way, when lost people are being found, when sick people are being healed, when marriages are being restored, when relationships are being mended, when the gospel is transforming lives and even communities, personal preferences tend to fade into the periphery. Because the time is short and the mission is urgent. There was a saying in that near that time some years later, but about Nero. I don't know if it was ever true, but they said Nero fiddled while Rome burned. That he had no care for or interest in anyone really other than himself. Is it possible that the same could be true within the church? The church bickered while the city burned. And if that's a potential within us, we respond to conviction, not to condemnation. We're not motivated by guilt, but by the gospel. The gospel that has come to bring unity. an invitation and belonging. Just like Jesus did at that table. Before there, was, before there was perfect belief and holy behavior. And if Jesus has extended that belonging to each one of us. That's the gospel. Before and even while we are still coming to belief and coming to try to look at our lives and say, what must it look like? Jesus has died for us. How could we not extend that same invitation and belonging to one another and certainly to the lost? His table is open to all. And so let's respond to that, church. I'll invite the team to come up and help us respond. I've already given the words for the meal. There's elements there in the back too if that's closer to you. As we come to this table, remember this. You and I don't have the power to snap our fingers and change. Change our preferences. Change that our eyes see others. Change our selfish heart. We don't have that power. We have the ability to repent. We have the ability to come and say, Jesus, help. I see you and what you've done for me and I want to be that for one another and for the lost. Help me, Lord. This bread that I'm eating and this cup that I'm drinking has reminded me of the cost that you paid for me. Show me how to lay down my life and my preferences for your glory and for my joy. Dear church, we need one another. Amen.